You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. After I had my first child, I found it really hard to watch the news. Not that it had ever been a pleasant experience, but it all became too painful, too overwhelming. Climate change, refugees, wars, racism. And with my hands literally full of a small baby and all her needs, I felt impotent. Brooke McCallery believes there is a way to keep on caring that just might change the world. You may know Brooke from her enormously popular The Slow Home podcast. She also writes book and her latest is called Care, The Radical Art of Taking Time. Hi, Brooke. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? Good. Thank you. Uh, To start with the most obvious question, why did you write this book? I found myself in much a similar situation as you when after you'd had your first child. I mean, my kids were older, but last year, uh, you know, the beginning of 2020, we had the Black Summer bushfires and then we had the floods that put the bushfires out but also decimated massive areas. And then, you know, the entire conversation around climate change uh, that came on the heels of that. And then we had COVID and then we had the Black Lives Matters movement and, you know, systemic racism and social injustices and you know last year felt a lot for people Mm -hmm. who care you know for people who have their heart on their sleeve and want to see the world change for the better uh which I count myself as one person I think most people would and I found myself particularly during lockdown just almost obsessively scrolling the news for updates on COVID and for, you know, political updates. And like, I wanted to be informed because again, I cared and I cared hard and I cared big. And then I realized one morning that I could not get out of bed because I had completely burnt myself out uh, on this big caring. And it's funny, I had actually started writing a different book at the end of 2019 that was an investigation into self-care and how it had become commodified and commercialized and sort of excluding a lot of people in in doing so and I found myself at this point where I was all burnt out from caring but realized that self-care at least as it's packaged up now was not going to be the answer that I needed uh, in in order to find some semblance of equilibrium again so that's really where I landed on this idea of the spectrum of caring you know on one end we've got these big global collective cares. And then on the other end, we have self-care, which again, can be really helpful, but also, you know, pretty problematic. And then in the middle, you know, what was there? So I landed on the idea of small care, which is the, you know, the premise of the book. Um, And I've broken it down into sort of nine chapters, nine core ideas that had to be accessible to everyone. That was the main sort of thread of the book. So that's where I, I landed. I'm really intrigued and interested in this book that hopefully you'll go back and write about um, self-care. Can you talk to me a bit about what you mentioned there in terms of the commodification of self-care and how that can feel exclusive? Yeah, I think, I don't think I'd realised how far the self-care industry had moved away from the roots of self-care until I started researching it. And, you know, self-care began 
back in the 50s as a movement with doctors to help uh, institutionalised patients learn how to, to care for themselves in very basic ways like brushing their teeth and, you know, hygiene and getting dressed, that kind of thing, to allow them some sense of, uh, you know, independence and agency. And then it was adopted by um, the Black Panther Party, actually, as one of the tenets for their policy and their movement, because the members of the party could see that, you know, black communities in the states were underserved in terms of health care. And they realized that, well, we have to learn to care for ourselves because, you know, the support that other communities get isn't coming. And that was sort of the... I guess the turning point and you know it's kind of it's heartbreaking like it's a heartbreaking thing for an entire community to to have to to realize that we have to do this for ourselves Um, but it was more communal right it was we care for ourselves as a collective and then over time over the last sort of 30 or 40 years it, it very much became an individual pursuit and as it became this individual pursuit it got attached to status and money and you know all of the things that we now think of as self-care which so often cost us if not in money then definitely in time and access and that has moved a lot of people out of that conversation you know most people don't have hours a week to practice yoga they don't have hundreds of dollars a month to spend on you know skincare or facials or you know, home delivered juice regimes or whatever it is that self-care <laughs> looks like. <laughs> it's a very Instagrammable thing, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, when it's Instagrammable, suddenly something that feels good for us as an individual, you know, we think, well, this feels caring, but it mustn't be self-care because it doesn't look like, you know, all of the all of the posts that I see. And then it, you know, it spirals. It becomes this very much capitalist-driven idea, uh, which frustrated me because the roots of self-care are genuinely beneficial for everyone. Mm. So moving on to these small acts of caring that you talk about, those nine core ideas in your book, some of those, I won't go through all of them, but things like connection, kindness, play, seem to me to be kind of essential tenets to parenting well doing those things well with your children, things like connection, like really listening to your kids and you Mm. talk about deep listening. Do you think it's possible to change the world through the way we parent? I really do. In fact, that's something that I landed on really strongly during the writing of this book because, you know, I'm I'm sure you've experienced that, that sense of overwhelm, that sense of what can I do? I'm only one person. And then you look at the choices that we make every day as parents and you, you, if you're able to, you know, zoom out to a 10,000 foot view of your life and their life, just for a minute, you can start to see how the choice to show up and listen deeply or to lay in bed with them at night and give them a cuddle, uh, you know, even though you're tired, but that's what they need. So that's what you give them. They start to add up to a child who is, um, you know, secure, a child who is able to develop healthy self-esteem, who is able to think critically because you've given them the space in which to do that. And if we had a generation of, of children grow up into adults who can think critically and who understand the importance of generosity and, you know, and kindness and connection, I think that there will be a, a massive shift in the way that, you know, the world operates because as they grow, 
they become people who shape what society looks like. So I do, I do, you know, I really do. And if it never gets to that point and all we've done, you know, air quotes, all we've done is to parent children into adults who like themselves, I think that's phenomenally powerful as well. Staying with that idea of parenting our kids and, and trying to change the world, but also tying in that idea that self-care has moved um, quite a distance away from its original aim. I'm just wondering if you can talk to me about rest, because that seems like something as parents we need to be better at in order to parent our children that way in a caring way. But I have to admit, I find rest so difficult. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why we find it difficult and how we might do it well. Yeah, I think that you're definitely not alone in finding it difficult to rest. And I I myself find it difficult to rest. Like I'm someone who has written about slow living for years. And when I decided to experiment with this idea for the book of laying on my bed for 15 minutes on a Saturday afternoon and doing nothing, so no phone, no book, no distractions, I found it really difficult. And I think it's because we are either, we're pushed to either consume or produce. And even in our downtime, you know, our downtime looks like consuming podcasts or Netflix or listening to an audiobook. Uh, and our downtime might even look like gardening or cooking or, you know, some sort of output. And they're both fine. And I think they're both relaxing in their own way. But there's this space in between that is really neglected for most of us, particularly as parents. And that's that space of just being. You're not doing, you're not making, you're not consuming, you're not, you know, learning, you're just being. And in that space of just being, we get the opportunity to know ourselves, you know, to to spend time in that inner world that really doesn't get much time or attention, uh, particularly in modern life. And I think that by recognizing the benefits, and that's what this whole chapter was about, by recognizing the benefits of resting, of idleness, of, you know, the the Italian art, like of the the, the sweetness of, of doing nothing that I write about in the book, there are genuine benefits to all of us that I think can not only help us feel better in ourselves, but as you said, to be more engaged parents, to have more patience, to have more desire to connect and to, you know, to be kind and to model those things that are important to our kids. And I think the thing about idleness that I didn't understand initially is that we need to practice it. You know, in mm. Western culture, we are not we are not encouraged to to practice idleness. So to, you know, take yourself into a, you know, a bit of a training regime, I guess, tongue in cheek, of doing nothing is one way to to learn how to how to you know embrace the idea of doing nothing, even if it's only for five minutes a day. And then with that comes the awareness of what it feels like when we're idle and what the benefits that flow on from that are. And as you start to see them and feel them, you can recognize more and more opportunities throughout the day for those little pockets of rest. Now, as I mentioned, I'm not going to go into all of your um, nine core ideas about how to care because that's what the book's for and people can read it <laughs> and it's a great read. So we'll, we won't go through all of them, but um, I did want to end on one because you mentioned in the introduction that 
it's um, it might be a surprising journey to work out how we can embrace small acts of caring and I suppose rest might be surprising for some. But one of the other things you talk about is awe and um, I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about how you see awe contributing to those small acts of caring. Yeah, so when we hear about awe, I think we tend to picture big nature, you know, Uluru, the Grand Canyon, mountains, that sort of stuff. And they can definitely be awe-inspiring, and I've experienced that myself many times. But the more accessible ideas of, you know, experiencing awe, of putting ourselves in front of something awe-inspiring are what really interested me. And they can be things as simple and as, as quite literally every day as, you know, our heartbeat or uh, uh, the process of breathing and spending a moment every day thinking about those things that happen without any kind of conscious effort on our behalf and how they literally keep us alive and how they are numbered. You know, they will stop, your heart will stop beating at some point. And that is terrifying and also quite humbling. And that really is the is the the center of awe. Awe is wondrous, but it can also have that underlying thread of fear. And it's actually the combination of those two things that makes it so powerful because awe uh, has been proven in lots of research to uh, to increase our sense of self-diminishment. So by that I mean we get to see ourselves as part of something much bigger, a small part of something much bigger, which flows on to changing the way we view ourselves as part of humanity, you know. It changes our approach to time. We, people who experience awe on a regular basis feel like they have more time. And I know as a parent that's something that appeals to me enormously because <laughs> there, there's never enough time. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it, it it impacts us in terms of things like generosity and altruism. So I think that if we all experienced a little bit more awe, if it's, you know, looking at the apple that we're eating for morning tea and thinking about all of the processes that had to go into that apple existing and all the people who had to do their jobs and all of the, you know, the weather that had to to be, you know, the correct kind of, temperature and climate and all of that kind of stuff like just one apple if you're able to find a moment of awe in that or in the sandwich that you eat or you know sitting out in the backyard and looking at the stars with your kids those are moments of awe that are just ripe for the picking and the flow on of them is phenomenal you know more time more generosity more patience I think if we all had that it would be a vastly different world Brooke it's such an interesting book and a really great way of looking at at caring, especially when we feel overwhelmed by what's going on in the world. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's Brooke McCallery. She's the author of Care, and there'll be links in the notes of this episode for where you can find the book. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.